Hi, I'm Alex Mozed, founder of Applico, and today we are on Winner Take All, where we talk about all things tech and modern monopolies. So um, we've got an interesting agenda today. We're going to talk about China. We have a couple uh, platforms announcing earnings in the next couple of days. Tencent's announcing earnings tomorrow. Alibaba's announcing earnings on Thursday. And what should we expect uh, in those earnings releases? There's also some interesting news when it comes to... Um, Huawei and their Harmony operating system, which they've launched as a result of uh, Google not being able to work with Huawei smartphones anymore uh, because of the trade regulation and and ban on, on Huawei. Um, we're going to zero in on some uh, M&A that just happened. So Farfetch, which is a uh, platform in Plat, large marketplace for luxury goods and products uh, bought Off-White. And we're going to dig into that acquisition. I think it's really interesting. There's been a lot of activity in B2B recently. Uh, two big B2B players have announced a merger in the aircraft supply space, Wesco and Pentair. Um, Office Depot is now saying that they are a B2B company. And Amazon has entered the, um, the sanitation and janitorial supply space. Uh, lastly, there's an interesting company, Plat. it's in Plat called cars.com um, and a activist investor went into plaid a little over a year ago and unfortunately the stock has nosedived losing almost half of its value just in the past couple of months so we're going to dig into what's going on with cars.com and try to figure that thing out um so let's go to china if you actually look at these stocks look at tencent look at alibaba over the past year net net these things are down um, 10 cents down off of where it was a year ago. Alibaba's down off of where it was a year ago. And these are really two of the most dominant uh, Chinese platform companies. Uh, Alibaba's in Plat. 10 cent is not because it doesn't have enough uh, transparency with the information it shares with the US exchanges. But what we're seeing with Alibaba, it, which is announcing earnings on Thursday, you know, we wanted to dive a little bit into the numbers about. Um, just how big Alibaba is and how can we compare that to Amazon? So kind of interesting here, what, what Alibaba is doing in GMV, they actually haven't publicly disclosed this data for a while, but from our sources, they are doing about $806 billion in GMV. Okay. Compared to Amazon, Amazon is doing $277 billion in GMV. A huge differential, right? That's almost 3x the amount of GMV, the total throughput on Alibaba, which they have multiple marketplaces in China. They have Taobao, they have Tmall. They do a lot of B2B distribution in China. So China's actually ahead of the US in bringing online a lot of the B2B distribution transactions, whereas the US is really all B2C at this point. Um, as compared to B2B being a, a real factor for marketplaces and, and e-commerce. Um, so there's a few differentials as to why. But when you look at their revenue, okay, so Amazon has $233 billion in revenue and Alibaba has $56 billion in revenue. Also, let's understand why. So um, Amazon's doing a lot of 1P selling. They, they are also a seller in addition to their 3P third-party sellers. Um, Jeff Bezos was saying 58% of the $277 billion number, which I think is around $160 billion, is actually sold by third-party sellers. But that leaves over $100 billion that Amazon's actually selling as a 1P seller, right? Where they buy a product, 
it goes on their balance sheet and then they resell it. Um, whereas Alibaba is only doing about $56 billion in total revenue. So Alibaba is doing much less what we would call linear selling. And actually in China, the whole um, idea of being able to take a take rate where if you sell a product in my marketplace and I take, and the platform takes a 10 or 15% of that hundred dollar product, um, that concept doesn't actually exist very much in China. Instead, what happened was when um, eBay and Alibaba were duking it out many years ago, Alibaba decided to beat out eBay by saying, we're not going to charge any take rates, any transaction fees at all. And that let the buyers and sellers um, meet and communicate off platform because now Alibaba wasn't relying on taking a take rate. So they didn't have to worry about buyer and seller connecting and cutting Alibaba out of that transaction, right? And that's very much so more in line with culturally how consumers, especially business consumers in China, prefer to interact when, when buying and selling. Um, so what did Alibaba do is they uh, built an ad revenue model. So now for sellers and merchants uh, on Taobao, on Tmall, really a lot of this $56 billion in revenue is generated from sellers and merchants taking out ads to give themselves sponsored listings, to give themselves more tools and services that let them sell more product or, or be more visible um, in Alibaba's different marketplaces. Amazon just rolled out advertising in the past 12 to 24 months, right? So you can kind of see how the, the business models are very different. Um, and, and therefore, the revenue profiles are very different. That said, I think Alibaba's beat for the past, I think, maybe uh, 14 quarters in a row now. Um, profit is expected to grow at around 27%. Revenue is supposed to grow at 38%. Still very strong uh, growth metrics. But this is supposed to be their slowest growth in 14 quarters, being affected by the U.S.-China trade relationship. Um, Tencent, on the other hand, which is announcing earnings tomorrow, um, is supposed to have about 24% in profit, whereas the year prior was only 2% in, uh, in profit. And both of these companies also have very strong cloud businesses. If you think about Amazon with AWS um, and, and Microsoft with Azure, basically Alibaba and Tencent are also the number one and two players in the cloud platform arena in China. Um, Tencent also has a lot of video games. So um, they own WeChat which is a hugely popular messaging platform. Now it's a payment platform in China and uh, video games. So they own the maker that makes Fortnite and a number of other popular video games, both in China and in the US. So two different profile of companies, right? Alibaba much more focused on marketplaces, but they also do have cloud platform. Um, Tencent much more focused on these kinds of more maker type platforms, content platforms um, that... Uh, that also competing in in the cloud platform space, but also have different parts of their business with messaging and so on and so forth. I think both of these companies have a huge amount of growth in front of them. I think both of these companies will be able to uh, beat earnings going into tomorrow and the day after. I think investor expectations are already hampered because of U.S.-China trade relations, right? So the impact, the negative impact that that's going to have on the stock is already very much so priced into um, the expectations going into these earning releases. But if you look at the amount of growth, right? If you look at Alibaba, 800 plus billion dollars in GMV, 56 billion dollars in revenue. When we look at their actual profit, their net income, they're making 12 billion dollars in profit as compared to Amazon's 10 billion dollars in profit. So it's still a 
company with a huge amount of growth potential in from it in front of it just if you think about how they could monetize um more revenue on that 800 plus billion dollars in gmv especially compared to what amazon is doing in in their revenue to gmv ratio another chinese tech company not platform company which i'm not as bullish on as huawei so huawei is announcing uh this harmony os which is basically their android alternative for smartphones and smart home devices so um all of huawei's uh european smartphone business is effectively dead i predict because even if they launch their own harmony operating system they're not going to be able to build a community of third-party developers, which is really the power in a platform. It's the ecosystem. It's not the technology. So even if you have the technology of your own operating system, how are you going to go convince millions and millions of developers to now make their apps specifically for your operating system? You need a lot of demand. And, and just in the United States, we've seen three massive tech companies try this and fail. Amazon tried it with the Fire Phone. Facebook tried it. Um, they were partnering with... Uh, like LG or, or one of the uh, smartphone manufacturers, that failed. Uh, Microsoft obviously tried and failed with the Windows phone and many others. So it's very hard to actually, it's, it's near impossible to have a third successful platform business, right, to compete against iOS, Android. I just don't think there's room for a third operating system. Now, in China, it's a different story than in the European market or in the U.S. market. And in China, what Huawei is saying is Harmony OS is going to start out on their cloud TVs. So really, this whole news is very misleading because they make it sound like they're going to have an operating system that could rival Android on smartphones. But that's actually not the case. They're saying it's going to take them a few years for this to even be ready for smartphones, which means there's absolutely zero chance that Harmony OS has an impact outside of China on any on smartphones. And I think it's going to have a tough time just with cloud devices in general, we haven't really seen an operating system take off on connected TVs, for example, at all, let alone, um, let alone, you know, it, it working for Harmony OS. We've seen Apple TV, we've seen Fire TV, we've seen, um, you know, Google's uh, version of this, but, but those are also kind of very different packages than, than Harmony OS. So um, I think Huawei is just going to have a tougher time and the regulations that the Trump administration has put on them aren't getting any easier. So um, they're not going to be able to be a third uh, successful platform. Okay. So now uh, what we talked about last week was on the note of Microsoft, their Twitch competitors called Mixer. And it's, so it's a live streaming competitor and they got uh, Ninja, who is one of the most popular live streamers um, on Twitch to come over to Mixer exclusively. So this was a big win for Mixer. We were talking about this um, as like a double marquee strategy where Ninja has a huge following both from um, viewers, but then also other live streamers that would also want to come join the platform. So now Microsoft is able to juice both sides of that ecosystem. And this article just came out that said within five days of Ninja going to Mixer, they got a million subscribers. Ninja got a million subscribers uh, on his profile on Mixer, which I'd say is a pretty good feat and pretty good early sign. Um, now, this is what's interesting. It, Twitch obviously didn't really like that their top uh, streamer um, had left the platform. And so they started to advertise other competitive channels on Twitch on Ninja's profile. Now, Twitch had never done this before for any other streamer, apparently, according to Ninja. 
um, on Twitch. So he definitely felt a little chided by that. And just keep in mind that these live streamers have a huge audience of kids, right? You know, uh, children, uh, people under 16 years old. It's a, it's a much younger demographic. And so um, basically what happened is someone uh, or Twitch was advertising a channel that had pornography on it. And that basically sent Ninja um, o- over the threshold. And we'll play this little clip here of, of his response. I'll fast forward it. Just me. And there are also other streamers who have signed with other platforms whose stream and channel still remains the same. You can see their VODs. They don't promote other streams. They don't promote other popular channels, but they do on mine. I've been streaming for eight years to build my brand, to build that channel, 14 and a half million followers. And they were still using my channel to promote other streamers. Well, now there was a porn account that was number one being recommended on my channel. And I have no say in any of this stuff. So this is like the, this is the line, this is the straw. We're trying to get the whole channel taken down to begin with, or at least not promote other streamers and other channels on my brand. Okay, so you get the idea, right? Um, big, big producer on Twitch leaves the platform. Twitch not happy about it, starts advertising other com- competitive producers on Ninja's account. Ninja obviously not happy about that. Then this pornography thing slips in there. I mean... It's just a very big oversight on Twitch's part. I'm sure they didn't purposely do this, but but um, you know they launched this uh, ability to advertise other competitors' streamers, and they didn't police it or they didn't they didn't um, oversee it as well as they should have. They were sloppy. Um, I don't think it was intentional. That would be really bad. Um, but uh, obviously, just not a good look. Not very professional. But you can see that when platforms compete, things get really hairy. Um, and you know, platform wars, uh, are a special thing to watch. And so Twitch definitely not happy with Ninja's departure as he was one of their biggest, uh, celebrities. And, and that's what platforms do when they really get to scale, they create celebrities that weren't celebrities prior to joining the platform. So I'm, I'm sure Twitch feels pretty chided that the person they created into such a celebrity figure, um, is now leaving them and then going to a competitor. So um, you know, it's interesting to see how the platform wars play out. Another interesting platform de- platform development is what uh, Farfetch did buying Off-White. So if you're not in the luxury designer good game, which is okay, um, I'm not either. Um, but basically, Off-White is a huge up-and-coming brand. And the guy who founded Off-White is, was hired by Louis Vuitton Virgil um, Abloh, I may mispronounce it, sorry, Virgil. But basically, Virgil's become a huge figure in the design game. And uh, he's now Louis Vuitton's like head designer. And, but he also has this company, um, Off-White. And uh, Farfetch just bought this for um, $675 million and is now going to have exclusive tie-ups with the off-white inventory. I think this is a genius move. And let's go back to kind of acting as a producer, right? This is one of the ultimate acting as a producer strategies. Farfetch is saying, we have a marketplace for luxury designer goods. Off-white is a huge up-and-coming brand, A. B, if we can now have exclusive inventory um, on, on Farfetch, now that's just going to make our value prop that much stickier, that much more compelling for our audience of consumers. 
Um, and I'm sure now also what they'll be able to do is use that to their benefit for where supply goes. Now, can they give special supply deals to the producers that are selling on Farfetch? I mean, this becomes really, really interesting as you think about how it can affect both sides of that Farfetch ecosystem. I think it was a genius move uh, on the part of Farfetch. Um, and, in the, you know, this is... This is one of the reasons why you go public because you have access to capital. You have the ability to kind of make these uh, M&A kinds of moves that you just don't have, or it's not certainly as easy to do this um, if you're not a public company. So I think this will be a very interesting. Farfetch is in plat. Um, actually, let's take a look. How has their how has their stock responded as a result of this? I guess not, it might have taken a hit. I think it actually did take a hit, but now it's back up 5%. So. Uh, I think long term, this will be a great decision for the team over at Farfetch and and how this just really juices their demand and supply side network effects. Another area that's not doing so hot with platform innovation is B2B distribution. So there's been a lot of there's been a flurry of announcements here um, over the past week uh, about what's going on in B2B. Office Depot says they're a B2B business, not retail. Um, I mean... <laughs> You know, their retail business is basically nothing. They were taken over by a private equity firm. Um, I think it's that, you know, it's a private company. Growth in Office Depot's business service division is huge, I guess, but they're still only doing $2 billion in revenue. I mean, these guys are a sliver of the office and you could say office supply, like MRO part of B2B distribution. Um, Granger being one of the biggest with over $10 billion in revenue. The hundred billion dollar, roughly, um, uh, market size in the U.S., but, but Office Depot is is also going to get rocked in this industry as well because they don't have a marketplace dynamic, and this is the most commoditized vertical of B two B distribution. These office supplies, they're pack and ship. They're extremely commoditized. There's a million different manufacturers for these things. There's so many different third party sellers and distributors. This this vertical is one of the best verticals for the value prop of a B2B marketplace. Um, Amazon business has been in this space for multiple years now. So, I mean, I guess this is a good short-term gain for Office Depot, but long-term, there's just going to be carnage here. Um, so, good luck. But uh, there's also more mergers. So, this one, this this part of the industry, I'd say, is 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 definitely much less commoditized. So. Platinum Equity is a big private equity firm, uh, buys Westco Aircraft for $1.9 billion. So Westco Aircraft, not to be mistaken for Westco, which is electrical supply distributor. Westco Aircraft is a B2B distributor, but is really focused on supplying aircraft parts and different uh, things like that. So these are much more specialized products to the aircraft industry. And what they're basically saying is that these two companies are going to merge um, Patent Air is the other company that's that's being bundled up with Westco Aircraft. So now this will create um, a strong combined entity that's doing a few billion dollars in total revenue. Um, this is a much less commoditized industry because these parts are more specialized. The buyers, think about who the customers are, right? You're you're buying parts as different replacement parts or for maintenance and things like this on airplanes. You have much higher requirements for quality and making sure who the manufacturer is of these things and that it's not coming from a random supplier in China. And um, 
So there's definitely much more reticence on the part of the business customer in the aircraft distribution space. Um, that would make the adoption of a B2B marketplace like Amazon just much slower. Um, there are a lot of parts here that are pack and shippable, but there's also a lot of parts that are definitely heavy and just much more rare to find. Um, so I don't think this is a prime area for a B2B marketplace to come into. And this transaction will probably do pretty well, just given that it's much farther down on the list of commoditized industries that a B2B marketplace could roll into. Um, and then in you know the short to midterm, which is really what these you know, a lot of these investments are made over that life cycle, they'll probably be able to get good cost synergies and, and, and leverage different um, customer and product catalogs and, and do well with a play like this. But, but this is one of those rare areas within B2B distribution that I think something like this could actually work out um, pretty well. So the other news here is that Amazon is now entering the sanitation space and janitorial space. Okay. You, you know, you could say, what's the difference between this and MRO? I mean, there's a lot of overlap. Um, but the point is, this is also highly commoditized. Amazon business is coming in here strong. And it says here, it stands to reason that Amazon would launch a commercial private label program in the janitorial paper category as they seek to own the entire strata of the food chain. If you're a janitorial and sanitation B2B distributor, you should have seen that this was coming. This is only getting started. Amazon's going to come hot and heavy. They're going to bring their own white label products. As we've spoken about before, they've rolled out this Amazon commercial store, which is now their own white label products, kind of like what they've done with over 3,000 private label, white label products on the B2C side. They're doing that on the B2B side. Um, and um, it's, it's commoditized. It's highly fragmented. It has all the, thi- all the recipe list of things that would make for a B2B marketplace in the janitorial and sanitation space, wildly successful. And I'd say definitely have a winner-take-all market. Definitely command over 50% of the market share in the industry over the next five to 10 years. Absolutely. I think it'll be interesting to see what does Walmart do? What does eBay do? What does Alibaba do? Are they already in this space? Are they now going to do things any differently um, with this news? So we'll see about that. Let's end on cars.com. So cars.com um, is basically a marketplace to buy and sell a car. Now, the interesting thing with this industry is that there's actually multiple players in the buying and selling of cars. So there's cars.com in Platt. Car Gurus is also in Platt. Auto Trader, which is owned by Cox. Um, so if you think about Cox with like uh, TV stations and other media properties, um, so that's not in Platt. Edmonds, which is smaller, KBB eBay. So eBay has eBay auto. And then of course, Craigslist. So there's not as much of a winner take all dynamic um, in this buying and selling of used cars. And I think there's a lot of interesting reasons as, as to why that is. Um, one being that a lot of these transactions are actually taking place off the platform. So very much so these, um, these, uh, these marketplaces are kind of like 1.0 marketplaces. So the way they're making money is not on GMV or having a take rate um, or even facilitating the flow of money from buyer to seller through the platform. Instead, they're really just more of kind of an advertising um, marketplace of sorts, right? So if you're a seller, you basically pay for a um, package to be able to, to post a listing, kind of like you do on Craigslist. So you're not taking a take rate off of 
selling a $10,000 car. That would, that would generally be cost prohibitive. Um, so the margins are much smaller and they don't have a true um, similar take rate model that you see with, with, with Amazon or with eBay or with a lot of, with a far fetch, a lot of other product marketplaces. So as a result, um, you've seen this industry kind of fragment a lot because there's a lot of these kind of um, more so these marketplaces that you come to meet buyers and sellers, and then you transact offline. So I haven't really seen anyone go much deeper um, into the actual payment side of things. And I think that's actually a big missed opportunity here. So could you create a, a lending marketplace? Could you let a lot of third-party lenders come in and provide credit to different types of buyers um, and actually try and close that loop, actually try and keep that transaction within your marketplace. I think that would substantially change the economics in the industry and then actually try to capture what I would classify as platform leakage, which is basically just you come here to meet and then you leave. That's pretty big platform leakage. How could you now keep those transactions in the marketplace? Money's a good hook. Um, who else have we seen do this? We saw Alibaba do this with Ant Financial. Um, that was basically, so that's basically what Alibaba was. If we rewind to the beginning of today's episode, Alibaba would charge their sellers for advertising. Ant Financial would then basically be an escrow account. So then you would basically say, hey, you know, I am an interested qualified buyer. I'm going to put this money into escrow while we figure out and finalize all the details and shipment. And then you ship me the product. Then when I verify that you shipped the product, now I have the money in escrow and it just simplifies that whole transaction, right? Otherwise there's a lot of friction. Now I've given you a physical product and maybe you renege on the payment. A lot of sellers were getting burned that way on um, different Alibaba marketplaces. That was the genesis of Ant Financial. So could there essentially be a similar model here? Um, so, so that was essentially a payment platform, right? Helping the, the buyer and seller exchange money. Is there a payment platform angle here? Is there a lending marketplace angle here where you could actually help help uh, you know buyers get get access to credit? Um, I think that's what's needed. And and basically, what happened is so the reason why Cars.com stock has tanked, and I mean tanked, um, not good for the ETF, not helping out the curve here. Okay, there. Look at this. Um, boom, like in the twenty five range, and then now. Sub 10 bucks. This thing has lost like 60% of its value um, just in the past month. And there's an activist investor called um, Starwood or Starboard, I believe, um, that came in a little over a year ago and said, hey, we're going to put cars.com up for sale. Um, we think that you know there's a, they're missing a lot of value and that they should sell themselves. Okay, so... Um, the stock rose when this activist investor came in and then basically they took uh, nine months or so to then do an exploratory process, I think with JP Morgan to see if any buyers would be interested in buying cars.com. Unfortunately, that didn't work out so well and no one wants to buy cars.com, um, which then drove their stock price tanking along with some other factors, growth and other things weren't looking as well as, as they would have hoped. But not a good sign if no one is up to even buy you or even put in a bid. Um, you would think, given the amount of fragmentation in this industry, right? At least five different material players here: Car Gurus, Public, Auto Trader, pretty big player, Edmunds, KBB, eBay. 
Craigslist not buying anyone, but still handful of other players. You would think that one of them would want to consolidate and then um, with a more consolidated and a stronger position, hopefully in a winner take all market that an, an acquisition and M&A would make sense. Unfortunately, I think because the network effects here really haven't been trending towards winner take all for the reasons that I just went over, I think that's part of the reason why there really wasn't that interested of a buyer. No one's really been able to capture that lock-in effect and actually make a sticky network effect here between buyer and seller and facilitate that transaction from end to end. As a result of that, you know, I don't, I just, is I, I can understand why um, buying cars.com didn't make any sense. So these would be some of the interesting, there's still platforms, um, but these are really like 1.0 marketplaces, right? These are kind of like a Craigslist, but just a better user experience, a more tailored user experience. And then they charge a little bit more for ads, but it's basically like these 1.0 type of marketplaces. <clears throat> and this is what's interesting. So IAC, Barry Diller understands this. Angie's List um, home advisor. Those are more 1.0 marketplaces as well. They don't really handle the money. The flow of money doesn't really go through the platform. They're more like referral engines, <clears throat> which is basically what these, um, auto marketplaces are. When Angie's list and home advisor bought handy, handy's 2.0 marketplace, right? Handy does own the flow of money, right? Handy does have a much tighter um, level of accountability to the consumer because now, now the consumer isn't picking the actual provider of services on Handy. It's actually the platform saying, here's someone good who's going to come clean your home or install your TV and you're going to be happy. And you don't actually pick the actual service provider. Handy gives you the service provider and then you pay a flat rate, hourly rate for their services. That's a very different transaction model. That's a much more evolved transaction model than these 1.0 marketplaces where it's kind of whoever and whatever goes on the platform and then it's completely up to the consumer to make that buying decision. So the 2.0 marketplaces are much harder, right? There's a much more level of ownership and accountability and responsibility put on the platform, which means that there's a lot more work and like these auto marketplaces would really have to transform how they do what they do, right? If, if they were to handle payments or the flow of money or lending, um, that's a completely different model uh, than what they have today. So we just haven't seen any of these players, I think, really take that full on, um, full steam um, in the way that I think is interesting to see what Barry Diller is doing with the home services roll up. Now they have the 1.0 marketplaces and they have the 2.0 marketplaces. And I think putting the two of those things together is going to be very interesting to see how um if they can capture more concretely some of those network effects in the home services space. And maybe there's some lessons learned um, for this auto space as well. So um, that's everything we've got for today. Thanks for joining and I'll talk to you in a couple of days.